the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 1st of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Taoiseach will travel to Paris tomorrow to meet the French President Emmanuel Macron. On Thursday, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel will meet Leo Varadkar in Dublin. The leaders will discuss what the EU should do if the UK does not ratify the withdrawal agreement by Friday of next week, the 12th of April. If the UK leaves on the 12th without a deal, the UK's Justice Secretary says Northern Ireland will be placed under direct rule. David Gawk told the BBC yesterday that Northern Ireland's future in the United Kingdom would be put in doubt, causing him to worry about the integrity of the United Kingdom. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down, joins us now. Good morning to you and thanks for joining. What do you make of uh, the Justice Minister's comments? Well, I think, again, Project Fear is in full overdrive. Um, He's trying to put pressure on the DUP to back the deal. Uh, I think the View was very well articulated by Sammy Wilson on Saturday. He said if the deal is uh, tabled in Parliament a thousand times, we'll still vote for it a thousand times, vote against it a thousand times. Um, it is simply unacceptable. Uh, the situation, Mike, is changing that fast that even I, as an anorak, uh, and watches and listens to everything about Brexit, uh, is finding it very difficult to keep up with developments. Uh, it is moving at an extraordinary pace. And I really would love to know what you and I will be talking about this time next week, because I think I need to say to you, I simply don't know how this is going to pan out. I don't Mm. know. Yeah, Sammy Wilson uh, coming under fire, as is Nigel Dodds uh, from the UUP. Uh, They say they're at odds with each other. No, I don't think so. I think Nigel and and Sammy have made absolutely clear that the the present uh, Brexit agreement can never be acceptable to unionism because, yet again, I mentioned the word, the backstop. And there ha- we need to remember here, Michael, that there has been no change whatsoever mm. in the wording of the backstop since you and I first discussed this last November. It is it's simply, uh, it seems to be immutable as far as the mm. European Union is, it's tablets of stone material, and they are not prepared to change. And if they're not prepared to change, no unionist worth of salt would give any cognizance to the backstop. Couldn't couldn't be done. Uh, it's, it's totally unacceptable and has remained so throughout. Well, what are Messrs Wilson and Dodd saying? Uh, because Robin Swan contends that uh, on Friday, Nigel Dodds said uh, that uh, the United Kingdom would be better remaining in the EU rather than risking the integrity of the Union. But Sammy Wilson then said it would be perfectly acceptable to leave without a deal. Those, those two are not contradictory, Mike. They, remember, we're the Democratic Unionist Party. Uh, you know, we do what it says on the tin. And what we've made very clear is whatever the, the choice is regarding Brexit, mm. our fundamental principle is we leave on exactly the same basis as every other party mm. in the kingdom. But it, that's a hard Brexit we leave on the same basis. If it's a soft Brexit, we leave on the same but, basis. But it would appear that Sammy Wilson is saying, we leave without a deal, sure, that's no problem. And Nigel Dodds is saying the opposite. It would be a problem. No, no Nigel, what, what they're both say, saying is that we are Brexiteers. We want to leave the European Union. 
But we have no great capital invested in which way we leave mm. as long as we leave on exactly the same basis as England, Scotland and Wales. And that, 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 that's the ultimate point. I think Nigel's statement is, is, is firing a broad shot across the, the bowels of the Brexiteers and the Conservative Party and saying, you know, you can't depend on us to vote for a deal that includes the backstop. Mm. It's not going to happen. And yeah. therefore, we're going to have to consider other options. And what if it results in uh, United Ireland? Uh, I mean, uh, if David Gawke is playing a game of chicken, are you willing to drive at full speed in his direction? I, I, I don't see how the implementation of direct rule leads to United Ireland. Michael, as I keep saying to you, you're one of the top presenters in the Irish Republic, but I'd love to know your logic as to why Brexit leads to United Ireland. That's something new to me. The reality is that uh, direct rule, we de facto have direct rule to some extent in Northern Ireland already because major decisions are being taken by government ministers. Because it won't work. It won't work. I mean, that seems to be the logic of it. Uh, as Mr. Gawke uh, said to Andrew Marr, uh, it would be very bad news. Uh, there'd be economic uh, consequences uh, and security concerns. Uh, and he said he worries about the integrity of the United Kingdom, presumably because it just wouldn't work for those reasons. So you'd have to cut Northern Ireland off. Well, first I'm going to say that we've had many pages of direct rule for the last 40 years. And indeed, the last time the Assembly was suspended by direct rule, that didn't lead to any diminution of the United Kingdom or Northern Ireland's position within it. That just means that major decisions on investment, mm. taxation, etc., are made in our Parliament at London rather than mm. instalment. But there's, there's no corollary that that then leads to move towards United Ireland. Because remember, the only way that the, there ever will be United Ireland is if a majority of people in Northern Ireland in a referendum vote to do so. And, you know, so anything else is wishful thinking. And no matter what happens, there's still a majority in Northern Ireland who wish to remain part of the United Kingdom. Mm. Well, that's how things stand. Things change. Uh, Northern Ireland was never going to surrender. Now you're willing to if a majority of people uh, wish to unite Ireland. Uh, So, as I say, things can change. Obviously, if we reached a situation where a majority of the people in this mm. party in any kingdom voted to leave, we'd have to respect that mandate. But there's absolutely no indication that that's going to happen. Mm. I, I accept. I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying that <laughs> foundation for your argument may change. Uh, that the United Kingdom might say, or that Britain might say, the United Kingdom isn't working because of Brexit, because of a hard border on the island of Ireland. Uh, we're putting our people at risk. Uh, let's let Northern Ireland off and. Uh, keep uh, Britain uh, as such secure and safe? Well, the leg- legally they couldn't do that because the 1998 Act makes it very clear that it would have to be by means of a referendum. Mm. Uh, secondly, I don't believe a hard border leads to any demands for uh, the, the, to the disintegration of the United Kingdom because mm-hmm. remember, the UK government know that if that happens in Scotland would follow suit and the whole UK will be destroyed. But it would solve so, the I Brexit mean, I, dilemma for Britain, wouldn't it? But yes, yes, but the Union's mm. far more important than Brexit. The Union's far more important than a hard border. Mm. So therefore, you know, this is... Well, Mr Gawke is worried about it, not me. Yeah, Mr Gawke is worried about it at the end of the day. He hasn't got the part of anything about it. It's the free will expression of the people of Northern mm. Ireland but, that will have the final say. Wishful thinking, like you're not going to, you're not going to get us. Maybe, you're not going to get a United Ireland. Maybe or maybe not. I mean, Mr. Gawke is worried, and Mr. Gawke can't write legislation which can override the uh, existing legislation. Like there is no way that anyone would accept 
the implementation of United Ireland without the will of the people of the province of Northern Ireland. It's not going to happen. And again, those in Sinn Féin and Republicanism who are mm. jumping on the bandwagon, seizing this opportunity, at the end of the day, they have to convince 1.8 million people that it's in their best interest to join the Irish Republic. And there's very little sign that that's going to happen. Mm. And once the turbulence of Brexit's out of the way and things settle down, there'll be even less demand for it. So well, I'm afraid mm-hmm. Louth and Armagh will not be joined in the same country for in, in my lifetime, I'm sure. OK, well, Mrs May seems to be convincing more and more people of the merits of a, a backstop, or at least of uh, the merits of uh, the withdrawal deal uh, that she has reached with uh, the European Union, which includes a backstop. Uh, do you think if it goes for a fourth vote that uh, she may uh, realise a majority? No, um, because we're down now to 29 uh, Conservative MPs, and I would know some of them, people like Peter, Peter Bone and Bill Cash. There is no way on this earth that those individuals will vote for uh, the backstop or for the withdrawal agreement. So she certainly managed to whip that down by pressure to a hard core. But when you add the 30-odd Conservatives, three or four Labour, and, of course, the 10 DUP. It's clear now she's got down to the very hard core and she can bring it back to the cars come home. And you, it's not going to happen. You don't believe, do you, that uh, the United Kingdom is going to crash out without a deal? I hope not, Mike. I think everyone agrees mm. that the best way to solve this is to drop six paragraphs in the withdrawal agreement. No, everybody does not agree. That's the problem. If everybody agreed, we wouldn't have had this farce. But what people do agree is that if they hadn't those six paragraphs called the backstop, this Mm -hmm. agreement would have gone through long ago, and Mm -hmm. you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Exactly. I think Mm -hmm. what we still agree Mm -hmm. on is that it's in nobody's interest to crash out uh, in April uh, without a deal. And we've always said Canada Plus is Mm. the best option. It's the belligerents of Europe and indeed your own government that are clutching on to the backstop. And there's a very interesting article. Well, that's that's what Mrs May spent 18 months negotiating. As did did our belligerent government, as you call them, and uh, the belligerent leaders of the European Union. They spent 18 months sitting down tediously going over this and came up with an agreement. Uh, and now it can't be ratified by yeah. the United Kingdom. And on the 7th of December 2017, the Irish government could not believe their luck when they, Theresa May and her negotiators signed up to the backstop. They couldn't believe that she was going mm. to do it. But she did. And that, she did. And that was a major mistake. And at that stage, we warned her. Mm. And that's, as you say, well, it's about 17 months ago. At that stage, we made it absolutely clear to her that this deal will not run as long as she maintained the backstop. And the Irish government thought, this is amazing, she's agreed to it. Mm. Now, that being the case, it was ringing in her ears ever since has been the statement from the DUP, you will not get this through if you maintain your stance on that issue. Mm. And, Mike, you and I, it's getting very so, competitive, but you and I are apt to be negotiating mm. the issue of the backstop now for so long, and still it hasn't changed. Yeah, so what will happen? Uh, it, it, what, way are, <laughs> what way will the United Kingdom stay in the European Union? Because that seems all but inevitable at this stage, uh, that either it'll be a very long extension or that uh, they'll revoke Article 50 and call the whole thing off. Like, I don't know. I'll be honest with you, because I've appeared in your programme so often and I have predicted what's going to happen, and within days, the direct opposite mm. has happened. And I I just, I, I, you know, I'm do bewildered. You think, but do you, do, you, do you still believe Brexit is going to happen? 
I suspect the option will be a softer form of Brexit without uh, without the, the withdrawal agreement or without the backstop aspect of the withdrawal agreement. Um, I, I think that's not preferable. I believe we should get out with a clean break with a, a cannabis-style uh, trade agreement. But I'm being honest with you, the situation is so uh, complex, mm. it's such a state of turmoil, that anything, literally anything could happen over the next week. Uh, Confucius, he, he say, you hope to live in, in interesting times. Well, this, if you're politically minded, is utterly fascinating, but extremely worrying as to where we're going, because uh, we could come up with a botched agreement, which nobody wants, and I, I just would be quite worried as to where we're going. But there's still time, not much, admittedly, to, to try and resolve this extraordinarily complex Gordian knot. Okay. Jim Wells, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for Southdown. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, the clocks uh, changed uh, this weekend going forward, uh, meaning we lost an hour's sleep, but we'll enjoy longer evenings across uh, the months of the summer. On uh, the 27th of October, we'll change the clocks back and put them back by an hour. We'll get an hour's extra sleep and it should be brighter in the mornings, an issue that has been important traditionally because of children going to school and the danger of walking roads in dark mornings. Uh, But after we do that, we'll be changing the clocks again going forward next March. And if this was any other year, you could have gone on like that with that conversation forever and a day back in October, forward in March, back in October. But when we change the clocks again next March, uh, that may be the last time that we change the clocks in uh, this country because on the 1st of April next year, we have to decide what we want to do. We can have summertime or winter time, uh, And that means uh, that on the 1st of April, we'll decide we won't change the clocks ever again or that we will go back to winter time. Uh, if we were to change uh, the clocks on the 1st of April, that would mean that we'd have shorter summer evenings uh, and that we'd be going to bed when it's bright. Uh, if we decided... Uh, to do that uh, or not to do that, uh, well then uh, we would have brighter mornings in the winter. This is a a decision that we'll all be feeding into, as I say, over the course of the next 12 months. But I I don't know about you or how you're feeling this morning. I I think a lot of people look a little bit tired. I'm sure a lot of people are feeling a little bit tired uh, because of how we lost the hour of sleep. But it was only an hour and it was a couple of days ago at this stage. So why is it that we're tired today? Lucy Wolf is a paediatric sleep consultant and she's been explaining to me why. Well, we've all lost an hour of sleep, essentially. Um, your typical wake time, so mine, 6.10. Mm. Now is actually, it was 5.10 the day before. Or sorry, it's 5.10 now. Um, so it's going to take us about a week to almost recover from that. Why is and it then as a so long, that, though? Also, I mean, it really is just a, an hour and it was a couple of days ago. Why does it take so long to recover? Well, I guess I was challenging our internal body clock. And it's not just the hour itself, because what happens is we lose the hour. We, our wake time is now earlier than it would have been the week before. But also because of the change, we often don't achieve sleep at bedtime at the usual time. So you might lose some time there as well. Mm. And then you might be adding a cumulative debt to your sleep. And this is provided you're a good sleeper in the first instance, which isn't always the case. No, not But any adjustment to our timing, um, forwards or back, generally tends to have a disruptive influence for a couple of days, for sure. 
Right. Uh, and a week or so before it normalises. Well, I would always say it can, of- it can often take a week or so to recover. Mm. But again, of course, our children are more affected than we are as adults. Mm. And it's just a case of trying to bear that in mind. And they're more affected because they have, a, they have up until the age of three, in general, a daytime sleep need as well as a nighttime need. Mm. And when young children become overtired by even as much as 10 or 20 minutes, never mind an hour, right. their body has a chemical response so that it, can make going asleep and achieving sleep and maintaining sleep challenging. So it, it actually is physical rather than being psychological, like jet lag, if you like. It's exactly like jet lag. And you may say, an hour, oh, what's an hour? We've gone to France yeah. and it's not had an impact like that. But if you put that in context, when you've travelled, you're out of your routine anyway. Mm. But if we're in our typical routine, let's say this morning, we've all had to get up um, an hour earlier than we would have the week before. We maybe have struggled to go to sleep on Sunday night at our typical time. And so we're just all a little bit out of odds. Plus our feeding schedule is out. Mm. Mood and lighting is different. And again, it isn't just psychological, absolutely um, a physiological presentation. It's all to do with our circadian rhythm. I'm actually a, a little bit better today than I would have been in previous years. I'm knackered, I have to say, uh, but uh, a bit better because I reset my clocks on Friday night to offset the impact of uh, the clocks going forward. At the same time, uh, you sort of ask yourself, why do we put ourselves through it? And then you stop to think about it. And we're, we're coming into the summer and it will be worth it with the long summer nights, won't it? Oh, absolutely. It will be. And again, I love this time of year. I take this week all day long to get us into summertime mode. Evenings are longer. In our case, it's a little bit warmer. And again, there's a hint of something lovely that's about to come. But again, I suppose that leads to the next question, which mm. is, you know, why do we keep doing this? Why yeah. can't we just be on summertime all of the time? And we've been doing it since 1916, I think. Uh, it was uh, first muted uh, during uh, the World War. Actually, before that, uh, there was a, a pamphlet published in 1907 called The Waste of Daylight. Uh, it was actually mentioned in the Journal of Paris, as I understand it, in 1784. And the Romans had a similar system of winter and daytime, uh, different times. Uh, but is it a good thing to change the clocks twice a year? Because we're going to stop doing it. I know. I actually feel that the reasons behind doing it now are not as valid as they were when we had to do it, you know, and I think our infrastructures are great. We have great lighting. We have great um, roads and footpaths. Mm. Um, I, again, our children don't tend to work on, you know, work early in the morning for us uh, in a lot of instances. So the reasons behind it are not as valid. And I guess at this stage... I think it probably would be a good idea, and I know loads and loads of parents yep. would welcome it, to maybe just stay on one time zone if, um, uh, in uh, perpetuity. We have to do that, don't we? we uh, but we've decided to decide which time zone to uh, stick with come uh, the 1st of April next year and 12 months yes. from now. Uh, and uh, therein, uh, I suppose, we uh, look at uh, that question that you're talking about there and why the need for brighter mornings. Uh, children tend to be driven to school now. They do now, yes. So again, that's what would mean that I know that a lot of different bodies have kind of said, look, it doesn't actually matter which one we go for. I'm being very vocal about suggesting let's stay on summertime. Mm. And I feel that it would be more productive for us to have a longer evening, brighter evening. I think we might be more inclined to be out and more active if that is the case. I think it's good for our mood and behaviour. And I do feel that the darker mornings 
Um, where they're less productive in the first instance. And yes, our children are largely escorted to school. Even if they're going on the bus, they're escorted to the bus. And if they're walking, they are generally walking with an adult. And also if they're walking, mm. there is great street lighting in the most part. And uh, it's not just the bright evenings, uh, which I think a, a lot of us enjoy in the summer and uh, the idea of staying out and sitting out, perhaps. Uh, but uh, it's also the idea of having to go in and go to bed. Uh, is it more difficult to sleep if it's brighter? Yeah, well, definitely, of course, light and darkness has an influence on our sleeping pattern. But, you know, the amount of time it's going to be bright for, especially in the wintertime, is going to not going to have a huge impact on our sleeping pattern. But again, whether we're in winter or summertime, it's important that when it is close to our bedtime as adults, that we do start to, you know, darken things up, use dim light to get ready, have some maybe a pre-sleep ritual so that you start to signal to the brain that it is time to get ready to relax and prepare for sleep. And also it's important that we give our bodies a chance to relax in the evening time, that we're not constantly on the go because so many things have an impact on our sleep. You said yourself you have made a small adjustment Mm. over the course of the last few days to offset you know, the effects of this time change. But sometimes what happens is people are now over-relying on caffeine and other stimulants to keep them alert. And that is then having a counter effect when they try to go to sleep at bedtime. So it's important to be mindful about all the force factors that affect our sleep and for us to put in place, you know, routines that help promote better, longer, deeper, more restful sleep. All right, and I suppose there's uh, people who are feeling tired today who may go to bed that bit earlier tonight and find that they wake up too early in the morning. Yeah, you may, may have a little bit of that dysregulation this week. You know, keep having a regular bedtime, keep having a regular wake time. Mm. If you have, if you're inclined to sleep beyond 7.30 a.m. Uh, this week, you might, won't want to hear this, but this week, set your alarm so that you don't sleep beyond 7.30 a.m. This will create enough wake time for your regular bedtime, enough room for bedtime to happen with greater ease. All right. Lucy Wolfe, uh, paediatric sleep consultant and author of The Baby Sleep Solution. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. There's a lot of concern about drink driving. Everybody knows you should not drink and drive, but there are a lot of people who are concerned about driving the day after drinking the night before. This is following changes to the Road Traffic Act, or at least the penalties under that act for people found to have low levels of alcohol in their blood. This is between 50 and 80 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood. It was the case if you were discovered with alcohol in your system at that level, you'd have been given three penalty points and sent on your way. Now, if you're found to have alcohol at that level in your blood, uh, you're automatically disqualified from driving for three months and you receive a fine of €200. Euro. It's over the top, according to the Independent Alliance Minister, Finian McGrath, or at least it was over the top until he retract- retracted his statement, uh, which said uh, that Gardaí should be non-political and he called on uh, the Garda Commissioner to depoliticise uh, the police who were out implementing these drink-driving laws, which they didn't want to do, but were only doing because of how the minister had instructed that people be caught the morning after. Uh, This hasn't gone down well. well, As I say, he's retracted the statement. Uh, Eileen Brophy, our political editor, is on the line. Good morning to you, Eileen, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Is the retraction in itself enough? 
Well, look, I mean, I, it's not often that I, I agree with Charlie Flanagan and he says the whole thing is bizarre. And, you know, the worst part of that, like, it is bizarre. But the worst part of that is where he says it was dangerous. Uh, so, uh, and that was before he retracted it. But then other ministers came out after it was retracted. It was bizarre. I cannot get my head around the article. I've read it several times, and I don't know where Finian uh, McGrath was coming from uh, making those statements. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of talk around people are complaining about... I mean, I, I, I was out myself the weekend before last, mm. and um, I was down to the Fine Gael Conference. I might as well say where I was. Um, I was uh, in Wexford, Fine Gael Conference, Friday and Saturday night. Saturday night, people were afraid of, of drinking because they had to go home the next morning. Yeah. And, you know, people were, were saying, no, no, I can't have any more. I have to go to bed. Um, I have to go home. I have to drive home tomorrow morning. So people are now conscious of it. And I have to say, I thought that was that was actually a very good thing. And I come from the generation uh, that did drink and drive mm. and thought it was absolutely acceptable uh, to drink and drive. I remember people saying at that time, uh, you know, I drive better when I have a few drinks for me. You know, and I remember <laughs> yeah. journalists at that mm. time saying to me, you, you know, when I was a young uh, cub saying mm. to me, oh, I write better with a few drinks for me. Mm, you know, sure. I remember someone uh, telling me that somebody else had to drive home from the pub. Sure, they couldn't walk. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you all these things. And they were all acceptable mm. uh, at that time. And it's good now. It's not acceptable. Young people do not drink and drive. The majority of them, I know that obviously mm. there's exceptions, but very few uh, do drink and drive. Uh, it's sort of the norm, particularly in cities where people get taxis and things. It is the norm. You just don't drink and drive. Now, I know there's a lot you know, around the country. People uh, are annoyed about the limit and they are annoyed about the next day. Yeah. But things like where he said, uh, you know, about the, the Gardaí, um, you know, saying that, you know, don't blame me. I can, I can actually hear them saying, because, you know, they would get a lot of abuse when they're stopping people. And people saying, it's the law, don't blame me, it's the government. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You could understand the saying it. And that doesn't mean they're political. It doesn't mean they don't believe in the law. I mean, how often, Michael, have you heard people saying uh, when laws come into force uh, uh, across the board and people saying, yeah, but will it be implemented? Yeah, that's true. Do you know, mm-hmm. and, and that is the problem we've had. We've loads of laws that, that are not implemented. And here you have the Gardaí implementing this law and they're attacked by uh, a minister uh, for doing it. I, do, I, I know, I know Finian McGrath. I have dealt with him for many years. I'm completely have my in my head. I cannot understand where he's coming from. Whether he did that interview with mm. in, in in conjunction with another interview, and it just came up, and and he was talking off the top of his head about what other people were saying to him. And the people are annoyed about being stopped the next morning and about stopped been stopped going collecting children from school, mm. but they should be. That's the law. We can't be drinking and driving and people are drinking and driving and and should be caught the next day if the, if they're still have drinking their system. Right. Uh, so he said that the Gardaí should be non-political and yeah. the commissioner should depoliticise the force. Uh, and then after coming under fire and uh, hearing why uh, many felt he shouldn't have said that. He said, I'm happy to state that I have full confidence in Angarda Shia and that I was wrong to suggest that yeah. there was any element of uh, politicising within the force over the new drink-driving regulations. Uh, is that credible? Well, 
look, uh, to be honest with you, Michael, you, you, you can't come out and um, attack the force the way he did and expect in a couple of minutes or, or so to come out and say, uh, look, I was wrong. I, 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 I was dealing with misinformation. Mm. Like, what kind of information like, was he dealing with? Um, I, is this was this kind of pub talk that people were saying, you know, that the guards were were blaming Shane Ross mm. uh, for it all? It's you can't turn around and say, oh, I've full confidence, I might lose my job. I've full confidence uh, in in uh, in the guardie in the guard force, and and I'm glad he did come out mm. and say that because the guards have been getting terrible bad press. Mm. Uh, oh, uh, of late. But I, I take um, it though he could lose his job because he uh, could. Yeah, I, I mean, um, ministers can't engage in pub talk or no, whatever. Uh, no, I'm and, not saying it yeah, was mm, pub talk, but I I don't mm, know where something like that would come from. And this was an interview in the Sunday Independent. I mean, he wasn't overheard having a private conversation. No, or anything he like wasn't. That. Yeah. No, and mm. he wasn't. Uh, it looks like it was a full interview uh, in in the in the Sunday Independent that it wasn't. Uh, you know that he was chatting to even one of the journalists journalists uh, down in the Dole Canteen or, or, or something. It looks as if it was an actual full um, interview that, that mm. he did. So, look, I, 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 I can't, I, I can't make head nor tail of it. I find it absolutely extraordinary uh, that even if you did think that way, you know, that you would actually come out and say it to a journalist in an interview to go into a Sunday newspaper. I mean, he said things like that, you know, teachers, nurses uh, and guardy, they shouldn't be politicised. Like, for God's sake, like, you can't be saying things like that about people. Do you know, I mean, mm. it's just, uh, it's just well, unbelievable. May- maybe you can. Uh, uh, maybe he will. Maybe uh, there won't be a consequence. Maybe we'll be told, oh, look, he apologised and changed his mind within a, a matter of hours. Uh, and maybe that's OK. Maybe that's OK with Fine Gael, or maybe it's not. Uh, and I think that this is uh, something that the Independent, the Irish Independent, is putting up uh, to Fine Gael TDs in its editorial. Uh, it talks about Paddy that's Dunnigan yeah. and uh, the uh, thundering disgrace comment. Uh, and uh, in the article, then, it says, Dunnigan is unfortunately long gone and Fine Gael no longer has politicians of the old school who place standing by the institutions of the state above expediency. Fine Gael has long since lost the epitaph or, uh, of uh, being uh, the law and order party uh, that is undoubtedly a, a message to Fine Gael, is it not, to act on this? Well it is, yeah, and uh, what, it, what it actually is doing is it's, uh, it, it's annoying the, you know, the, the actual rank and file uh, uh, TDs mm. in uh, not only the ministers but in, in Fine Gael and obviously this week there's going to be a parliamentary party meeting and I would imagine there'll be uproar at that over this and you've also got to remember that if Brexit works out yep. and I'm not getting into Brexit now but you we'll know, have an election uh, yeah exactly we'll have yeah. an election if not uh, you know we'll also have a, a reshuffle now, the, you know, I don't think that Leo Varadkar will do a reshuffle as the way things are at the moment uh, in, in the country because of Brexit and, mm. and stuff. But I think, you know, if things do work out, we could, uh, he will turn around and he will have a reshuffle. So you're going to have a whole load of ministers, a whole load of junior ministers and TDs that expect to be involved in that reshuffle. And that will cause a lot of hassle over this uh, uh, this week when, when we have a parliamentary party meeting. Mm. And I'd be very surprised 
doesn't come up in the doll as well. Yeah, well because it's extraordinary what it said. Well, that's it. I mean, uh, I think it's clear from the coverage... Uh that the media has uh, taken this up and uh, it's going to get a, a lot of attention so it can't be ignored, uh, in other words. No, uh, it can't. Is there the prospect of uh, Finian McGrath being sacked or uh, telling us that he, he's resigning? And if so, uh, what would that mean for the government? Well, uh, uh, it is an independent... Well, they say, you know, they say every minister is Leo Varadkar's minister, even though the independent, but he's given a certain number mm. to the independent. So is there somebody there on the, on the sidelines in the independents that feels that they should be uh, the super junior minister um, and that's, uh, that's keeping looking at, at Finian's mm. job? Uh, so that, that the pressure would actually even be put on the, the likes of Shane Ross and, and other people within, uh, the, within the independent. But they have a tight majority, um, don't they, Eileen? They and and I mean, tight, if they were to lose the support of Fidu McGrath, it could be very serious as well. But it, 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 it certainly would, but they, there would be somebody to take that mantle. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Now, obviously, Fine Gael, uh, you know, TDs would feel that they should get it and it should be there. Mm. But uh, the, obviously, the independents would feel that they should get it. We already lost uh, one independent, as you know, mm. um, uh, uh, so, uh, one, yeah. one minister. Mm. Mm. And uh, I don't think they can afford to lose another one without replacing them with an independent mm. uh, themselves because they, they need the majority. So we just have to wait and see how this goes but it's, it's very difficult yeah. uh, not to get rid of them. It's very difficult. I mean nobody gets really sacked in, 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 in the doll. Mm. It's usually they, they resign. Well I can tell you it won't be it won't be Jackie Healy Ray or Michael Healy Ray who no, replace it because yeah. yeah well they've they're the cheerleaders aren't they? Uh, they are, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean I suppose this issue will be taken up in the doll by independents such as the Healy Rays. Yes saying, yeah, well, look, why don't you listen to your own minister? That's right, that's right. And that will make things worse for Finney and McGrath, uh, you know, because they will, they'll come on side with him uh, on this one. So, look, you know, you never know in politics, like, you know, an, an hour is a long time in politics, and you never know in politics how things are going to go. But there's no doubt in my mind this is going to go, this is going to live on. Uh, you know, th- this week anyway, and I think Leo Varadkar mm. will have to put it to bed one way or the other. Um, but Finney McGrath, it is, it is one mistake that he has made, and the only mistake uh, he, you know, I, I think people have great respect for him mm. with regards to disability and what he has done for disability. Mm-hmm. But uh, unfortunately, it was a big mistake that he did make. You and know? How much changes on Shane Ross's? opinion on all of this because he's a a colleague in the Independent Alliance obviously but it's also Shane Ross's legislation. It is his legislation and if if you read the article it kind of looks as if like one minute when you're reading it you think that he's having a go with Shane Ross of bringing in this you know Mm. very strict legislation which which got there was so much controversy in the doll about it but then you realise reading further down that he's actually standing up for, for Shane Ross and saying, you know, that uh, you know that people were 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 blaming Shane Ross for this, and the Gardaí were blaming Shane Ross for it as well, mm. uh, and and not only Shane Ross but the government. But they he definitely mentioned that they were blaming Shane Ross. So he he obviously is a supporter of Shane Ross's. But it was all right for Shane Ross to bring in a legislation uh, like this, which is very very strict legislation but it's not all right for the guardie to enforce it i mean like what is that about (laughs) 
I don't know. No, yeah. I mean, mm. so, I mean, obviously, uh, I, I, I'd say he'd have the support of Shane Ross to a certain extent, but even Shane Ross would have to say, you know, put his hands up and say, look, I, I can't defend this. Okay. Uh, you know, so I don't know. I don't know where it's going to end up. There, are, you know, you find yourself with things like this uh, that you think they're going to take legs, and things you don't think will take legs do take legs. But I don't think that this is going to to end up. I don't think this is finished mm-hmm. today. Okay, thanks, Eileen. Thanks, Michael. Eileen Brophy, our political editor. Michael Reed on LMFM. And let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. One of those listeners is Pat from Dunleer, who phoned in during your interview with Jim Wells at the top of the programme. And he says the bottom line is, Michael, that the DUP have made it clear that even if Theresa May comes back a thousand times with that deal, Mm. they are not going to vote for it once the backstop is there. Mm. He says that the Taoiseach has said there won't be a border put in place no matter what happens and so has the UK. But the bottom line is, how can that not happen? That there will have to be some form of a hard border if they go out without a deal. He feels that the EU Mm. will demand it, Mm. that the borders will have to be protected and the only way will be to have a hard border because you won't be able to control people. Goods is one thing, Mm. but people are is another. Mm -hmm. He may be right if the ifs are right. Uh, The ifs may not be right. Yes. That's the thing. Well, Uh, Pat just says he mm. got his green card the other day from the insurance company like many of us have been getting the cards in the post and he says even in the height of the troubles Mm. he never had to carry one of those and he says that he feels it will have a real psychological effect on people and fears what the implications will be down the road. Oh well he's right Uh, if uh, it was to happen I don't think it's going to happen Uh, I think uh, you can uh, watch dust gather on that green card because I don't think you'll ever need it. A text from a listener who, why doesn't Theresa May tell Arlene Foster straight face to face that if her party doesn't support the backstop, she will open discussions with the Irish government to hand them back the six counties of Northern Ireland in full, says this listener. Mm. And that's what should be said. Well, the Justice the Minister pressure hinted should be at put it. On. Uh, we are fed up with your charade on Brexit, says a disgruntled listener. I don't know whether it's to you or to uh, to, to Jim Wells. Okay. Uh, but mm. That was the text that came in. Uh, Having listened to all the talks on Brexit, says Mary from Navin, I still do not understand what the backstop means. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's a, a, an insurance policy uh, that... Uh, uh, the movement of uh, goods uh, would not uh, be at all affected. Rules and regulations would not be affected uh, and uh, that uh, to all intents and purposes uh, the uh, customs union would uh, and the single market rules would uh, apply to Northern Ireland. Trey's emailed us in this morning says Jim Wells has some neck calling the Irish government and the EU belligerent when the DUP was formed on belligerence against the Catholic community in Northern Ireland leading to the troubles and everything vile about unionism. Well, we will never surrender, not until Friday of next week, uh, I think, uh, but hold that thought for a moment. Uh, let's talk about some other issues. Uh, Labour Party councillor in Drogheda, Paul Bell, has come into us and uh, some good news. Uh, there was a, a lot of people who were dismayed at an arson attack on uh, the Thatch pub in the town uh, and the Thatch roof on it, uh, but uh, the money has been found for the repair. Yes, well, just in time, uh, Loud County Council made an application to the Department of Heritage uh, on the funding stream to protect 
and enhance uh, what is known as built heritage. Uh, and on this occasion, and I'm delighted to say that the Thatch pub will receive €10,000 to repair the damage that was done. Mm. Uh, my understanding is from talking to the owners and talking to people involved in the actual project that quite a substantial amount of damage was done on the surface. Obviously, you can see where the thatch has been borne off. Uh, the fire service rescued the, the complete roof mm. by removing that section, but also there's quite a, a substantial amount of damage done to the rafters, and those are all brand new rafters mm. that were installed of hard timber. So uh, the €10,000 will go, I believe, a fair amount of way to actually recovering the building. Mm. Uh, of course, that matter is still under investigation, uh, and I really was concerned that maybe the, the owners of the building would give up, but they haven't okay. stuck with it. And and all in fairness, all recognition yeah. to Low County Council and indeed government for providing uh, the money in a fairly speedy fashion. Great news! I'm sure people will agree, and I'm sure a, a lot of people would have seen the damage to Absolutely. the Thatch Cottage yes. uh, from park cars quite often uh, in yeah. grid, gridlock. Drogheda, uh, a town uh, that has a, a long history of being gridlocked. Uh, there yes. is uh, some move uh, afoot uh, to reduce the amount of vehicles uh, travelling into the centre of uh, Drogheda. Uh, but you're not happy at all. Tell us a, a little bit more about this. This is a, a plan that hasn't been published yet called Bridging the Past with the Future. And I call it Bridging the Past with the Past, Michael, because as you would know from this programme, and many of your listeners have always complained about the gridlock, mm. uh, especially those who wish to pass through the town mm. uh, en route to Belfast or route to Dublin. Yeah. Of course, we have the uh, the M1 motorway, which is a toll, mm. uh, toll road. Uh, but we always understood that there would be another link road mm. uh, to the east of the, the yeah. viaduct. Well, I mean, the solution is very easy. If you had all the money in the world, you'd build another bridge across the river. Well, the town will not be able to develop properly until such time as that infrastructure is put in place. Mm. Uh, we were called, uh, obviously, link from link from the loud side of the river to the mead side and join up uh, on the on the motorway further up around maybe around Julianstown. Uh, however, though, the, what has been ongoing for the last uh, number of months is that there's been a number of surveys being carried out on the, the Violet Bridge, uh, which I found unusual. But a lot of this work was done after hours, mm. uh, where there were engineers on site, and some people thought it was about restoring the actual bridge. Uh, what has actually come to light is the fact that uh, there was a report being prepared for Loud County Council, uh, bridging the past with the future, whereby actually the bridge itself would become part of the link road for transport, heavy goods vehicles, motor cars and the likes. Because it's a, a train line at the moment. It's a train line at mm. the moment. Uh, and this was, a, a, mm. when I first came into What's contact wrong with, with that? This, I mean, if you can use this bridge for trains, why not use it for cars if it's viable? Well, I think when you look at what goes on in other areas of the world where these iconic bridges have been built, normally what happens is, in parallel, there's a, there's a road transport bridge. Mm. But this seems to be aimed at basically spending very little money uh, trying to get a report generating some debate on let's talk about the downtime of the bridge. Mm. Now, I don't understand what that means because the, any commuter from Dundalk or indeed from Northern Ireland will know. Um, you can't get a seat in the train. You can't get a seat in the train. <laughs> yeah. It's full volume, mm. it's full on. Maybe Brexit will make a difference to it. Mm. Uh, but sure, for sure, for sure, we all know that the train service is full to capacity. We've been encouraging mm. people to use this. Uh, and they were also talking about the understanding that basically nighttime traffic, mm. uh, particularly heavy goods vehicles, would use this route. 
Now, to me, when I hear it at first, I said, well, this is absolute baloney. This is not mm. a, a feasible thing. Uh, but the report is available. Uh, mm. uh, sorry, it's not available to, to me mm. as a public representative. Mm. So serious is it, I will be calling for an emergency motion tonight for that p- report to be published. Okay. Because it is basically, uh, if what I understand is true, it is basically an act of archaeological vandalism uh, and I think it's really preposterous where someone says mm. we're going to spend money on this and the, I also the, want to know the, the cause the, of the report The train line would stay in place yes, and there'd be a roadway over the train line Well this seems to be the proposal uh, or it would run mm. under it which means that the you would then have road transport attached to what is basically mm. an iconic structure built in 1853. Uh, and by the way, has undergone modifications since that time mm. because of the weight of the trains, uh, because of the, the volume of traffic mm. uh, to strengthen the bridge. Uh, but it is just a, a proposal as we speak. Well, you see, the problem with this, Michael, someone has decided to spend money on a report. Someone has decided, obviously, to engage Ian Rod Aaron, mm. which is the uh, uh, the railway company, about this matter because the surveys were carried out okay. with their consent. Uh, what is concerned is that sometimes these things start off as as a kind of a notion, mm. and then someone says, "Well, this can be done," and then they'll show you examples of where it has been done. Okay. But the fact of life is, this is an, an iconic structure. It's part of the history of Drogheda. Mm. Uh, Sir John uh, Benjamin McNeil. You know, a fantastic engineer. Mm. Uh, remember something: uh, the bridge almost wasn't complete because when they were constructing that bridge, there was a bankruptcy. There was a number of accidents on it. There was no insurance. This is going back to the eighteen fifties, mm, uh, and now we have this conversation ongoing. Okay, well, we're kind of talking in a, a vacuum because yeah. this is a report uh, that has not been published as yet. You're calling uh, yeah. on it to be published Absolutely. at the council meeting tonight. tonight. I'm sure we'll hear more tomorrow if uh, perhaps you could return to us. Thank then. you, Michael. Thank you very much indeed, Labour Party councillor Paul Bell. Now let's go back uh, to some more of your thoughts. You have some more comments for us there. I Marie. sure do, Michael. Some response to your interview with Lucy Wolf, the sheep consult. I said sheep, the sleep <laughs> well, even. That's for people sleep. who count sheep going to bed, I'm <laughs> sure. Yeah, so it's kind of a Freudian slip of ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Jim from RD says that the clock change was tried before. Can't remember when, but I know it was a disaster and it didn't work. Mm. Uh, Nula from Trim says why change something that does work Michael it will be extremely dark in the mornings for children going to school Should if they we all leave get it lift, don't at they? the summer time will mm. it not no they don't all get lips yeah, sure. I've never seen no, a child don't. I've never seen a child walk well, not, well, not the, well not, clearly you're out too early not, in the morning not they're not gone to school children stopped walking <laughs> in 1979 <laughs> uh, we had Jim from Drogheda in touch regarding uh, your interview with Eileen on uh, Finian McGrath and Mm. says what was he thinking very Mm. ill-advised comments but he'll be he won't be sacked Michael because the government needs him predicts Mm. Jim well we'll see (laughs) have we time for one more we were discussing Mm. climate change and we had a couple of Mm. comments in relation to that following Friday's programme Mary text in climate this and climate that Adults showering every day, sometimes twice daily. Children and teens shower or bath every day. Also, the washing machine going on twice, three or four times a day. What happened, Michael, to the weekly wash days and clothes on the line, not in the dryer? And then the dishwashers in most houses now and must have. Why? Some small changes to start, like shower twice Mm. a week, unless you are a worker on a building site. Okay, well, (laughs) interesting, really, because... uh, uh, dishwashers actually save a, a lot of water. It's far better for the environment, I think, to use the dishwasher than to wash dishes in the sink. Uh, and uh, I think uh, 
that common belongs in 1979 when people spelled it a bit raw. Yeah, <laughs> We don't want to go back to that. No, thank you. Betty please shower every day. Just keep it to three or four minutes, please. Betty and Malahide, why can't the lights in multi-storey offices be, tu- be turned off after they finish for business? Yep. When I'm driving on the M50 at nine or ten at night, I see all the lights on in many buildings. And I'm sure that would make a difference. I'm sure it would. Betty. Yeah, yeah. So that's just a few. Of them okay, hopefully somebody will hear that and turn the lights off tonight. Thanks for that, Marie, and thanks, okay. Betty. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the Social Justice Ireland report on uh, the National Social Monitor. It's the European edition, which takes a look at how we're faring as a country compared to other European countries. Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland, is on the line. Good morning to you, Sean, and thanks for joining us here this morning, as always. Good to be here, as always, Michael. I, I think those who know would always say that you should never pay more than a third of your income on a Accommodation, whether that's on your rent or your mortgage, as the case may be. But as you've discovered, a lot more people are paying more than that uh, across Europe uh, and indeed quite a significant amount of people in this country paying as much as 40 percent, 50, 60, even more than that, some occasions 75 percent. That's true. The one in five tenants are paying more than 40% of their disposable income in housing costs, which is above the one third that you mentioned. And it gets worse. There's, within that, there's one in 10 who are paying over 60% and one in 20, that's 5%, are actually paying 75%. Three quarters of their disposable income is going on housing costs. So that's absolutely not um, viable in the long run because people can't survive in that situation. Mm. But it's not just confined to what they're paying. Households are also living in substandard dwellings, something that hasn't been maybe focused on sufficiently in Ireland. Uh, But the idea that uh, houses are all very good doesn't stand up when you look at it that the construction and so on is very mm-hmm. good because in actual fact when you look at houses with there's houses with leaking roofs or damp walls or foundations or you know damp foundations or rotting window frames and floors and uh, in Ireland 12.5% of the population that's over 600,000 people are living in those substandard conditions in the last year for which we have the stats which is uh, statistics which is 2017 mm. so that's a, that's a huge indictment and it, yeah. is, it isn't just you know the way we kind of have been focusing a great deal on homelessness and at a second level the need for social housing but there's also this substandard housing that's out there that also needs to be dealt with so people are facing if you like in the housing area they're facing assault from all sides because on the one side as you've mm-hmm. pointed out uh, more than a third of their income is going on uh, for so many of them particularly on the low mm-hmm. income side uh, is going uh, more than a third of their income is going on paying for the rent and quite often uh, the houses you're talking about are state provided substandard houses uh, we quite often hear of local authorities uh, running over budget and uh, running out of money in the maintenance grant and people without heating uh, without repairs, without all kinds of things that would be expected in a house uh, of a a decent standard on the other hand uh, when private landlords uh, are entering into the HAP scheme uh, and the council is paying for the rent, uh, the standards are very high. Uh, I mean, you need fire blankets and extraction fans and all sorts of things that a lot of people feel are unnecessary. 
Well, I think a lot of those things may be, may be necessary. I certainly wouldn't want to have a situation mm, where there was any danger of uh, fire uh, or that we couldn't deal no, with but fire. Rel- it actually happened. But relative to a, a ceiling but, falling. Exactly. You know, no, no, yeah. I, I, I agree with that completely, that in actual fact the standards are different and that's not acceptable at all. I think there is a, a backlog, if you like, that uh, a lot of the social housing that has been built by local authorities in more recent times is of a very high standard. Mm. However... It always was, I think. It, that's right, uh, but, uh, the no, oh, that sounds like the phone has dropped out on us. Uh, I think oh. we're there again, are we? Yes, oh, we're there again. <laughs> okay. But I think we had a, uh, we have had a situation where there wasn't uh, sufficient uh, maintenance uh, going in, mm. and uh, the kind of things that you've just outlined. And as as a result, uh, some of the local authority housing has been allowed to deteriorate beyond anything that would be acceptable, mm. and that would means in effect that they would be uh, caught, if you like, in this. Uh, category of substandard dwellings that we've been talking about uh, that's not confined to Ireland, it's across lots of Europe too but mm. but certainly in the Irish context it seems to me that it's something that has not been sufficiently focused on in recent years so it shows another argument, another arm if you like of issues or another range of issues that government needs to address in housing uh, because there's the rent issue there's the actual scale of the, the, the number of units being provided and then particularly on the social side and then there's this third issue, uh, which is substandard accommodation, mm. and I think we need to deal with that uh, without, uh, or else we've got even bigger problems than we had, and they're big enough as it is. is. Issues for this government, but not just for this government, for governments uh, across Europe, because bad as it might seem, here it is quite worse, uh, particularly in terms of what people are paying in rent compared to their income in other countries. That's right, and uh, I think there's an issue in there that uh, that is quite problematic because of the fact that the people across Europe, in so many countries, have to pay such a high percentage of their income in uh, in housing costs. There's a real, real problem in the countries in which it's actually addressed um, uh, and addressed well in countries like Germany and Austria and so on, mm. and the Nordic countries. Then uh, those those there isn't a problem. But where it is a problem, where it's not addressed, then we have a situation where people, I think, find this kind of dissonance that they find or this dichotomy in the uh, split in the European Union. On the one side, the European Union is doing very well, generating very good economic growth as a unit across the thing. But then, and there has been doing that for a number of years, maybe slowing down more recently, but still doing it quite well uh, over when you look at it in the longer term. But what's also clear from our analysis that the benefits of that economic growth have been distributed in a grossly unequal fashion. So that's true both in Ireland and in in, in, the, in other EU countries. And it's also true within countries mm. and between countries. So you have it like in Ireland itself within the country, but also in other countries, compared to other countries, the, the distribution, some countries have done a lot better than others. All right. And uh, in terms of housing, Greece, uh, the worst uh, offender, if you like, uh, in terms of what people are expected to pay in rent because 84% of tenants are spending over that mark of 40%. Uh, but in terms of wealth distribution, Greece uh, is in uh, the bottom tier of uh, the league as well. as it, it appears to be in most of the sections that you've looked at. It is. A- oh. <laughs> Part of the reason for that is that uh, 
they obviously were caught in a very, very difficult uh, bailout situation, um, worse even than our own, although they didn't have to pay 100% back as we as Ireland did. Uh, but uh, it's still, uh, they, they were in a very, very, and are in a very, very difficult situation, which raises issues, uh, I think, um, because uh, the, about the way the European Union has been dealing with some of these issues, uh, particularly with the, the bailout issues that have happened over the last 12, 10 years. Uh, and it's, it's uh, what the European Union did was to respond in a very strong way with an austerity program that cut back all over the place, and we are very, very familiar with that in Ireland. But now most economists of no, of um, most reliable economists, most well-known economists uh, across much of the world, maybe not in Ireland, but across much of the world, now agree that the austerity approach was the wrong approach and that it wasn't necessary and that it, it, it took much too great a toll, a toll that was not required for it for the economy to recover. And I think there's a huge issues need to be dealt with there. Why? Because we are heading towards more problems. Eco- economies go around in cycles. And we're, we, we mightn't be that far away from another kind of recession, if you like, across the European Union. And we need to face up to the fact that austerity is no solution in that context. And not alone do we need to face that up to that, but we also need to face up to the fact that the consequences of the austerity that were imposed as a result of the recession 10 years ago, and the bank crash principally 10 years ago, um, that if we're not careful, the, the, the negative outcomes of that will never be addressed. Mm. And that's, that's a situation that we would has huge implications because of the fact that we're going into European elections and so on. And a lot of people um, have, who, are, who have suffered gravely as a result of very unfair approaches that were used at that time um, don't have that much confidence in the European Union's political processes uh, to actually uh, sort of be positive about the future. And I think that's a follow-through from the fact that the European Union has been very focused on generating economic growth, mm-hmm. been very good at that, but has not focused at all on trying, oh, well, certainly hasn't focused in, in an equally strong way on ensuring that the benefits have been distributed in a, in, a, in, a, in a fair fashion. In fact, the benefits have been distributed in a grossly unequal fashion. So not alone do they need to focus on generating good economic growth and having a vibrant economy, but we also need to ensure that the benefits that are coming from that result in decent services for people in areas like health and education and childcare and decent infrastructure in things like public transport and housing and, 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 and rural broadband. And also that there's everything that's done is actually done in, in a sustainable manner, in a, in a way that not just environmentally sustainable, yeah. but also economically sustainable and also socially sustainable. So that the society yeah. you're generating is from where people actually want to live. And what about the environment? Uh, how do we fare in terms of protecting the environment that we'll be passing on to our children? Young people have been very vocal about their concerns recently. Uh, and young people are absolutely right to be concerned because our our performance is pretty poor. Between 1991 and 2016, uh, the, the, the countries that performed worse were Cyprus, Spain, Portugal and Ireland. And uh, they were the ones that saw their, instead of cutting their greenhouse gas emissions, they actually went in the wrong direction. Our greenhouse gas emissions are nearly 3 million tonnes over the pathway required to meet our 2020 targets. And 2020 targets next year, okay? And we're nowhere near. We're 3 million tonnes over uh, uh, what the emissions total should be. 
and we're on a track to overshoot these targets, obviously, significantly. Action, I think, in this area is urgently required because what people maybe aren't all that conscious about is that if government does not act now, Ireland faces ever-increasing environmental, social and financial costs because we are going to be fined and fined very heavily for our failure. And it'll be get to a point where we'll be fined every day we don't reach the targets. And in, in effect, we could wind up paying hundreds of millions in, in uh in, in costs here and that's uh, money that mm. could well be spent building social housing or dealing with the, the poor condition and substandard or uh, protecting the environment so or dealing <laughs> with the environment itself absolutely and reducing yeah, the emissions and ensuring that yeah. in doing that that there's mitigation there at the same time the idea that uh, you can just impose a carbon tax and that solves everything is just mm. daft uh, we, we, the carbon tax is part of the solution but it is only part and it can't be done on its own if we don't protect people who are suffering in danger of fuel poverty or in danger of uh, uh, from from the fact that they are depending on carbon such as uh, mm-hmm. petrol to drive cars or whatever mm-hmm. people of this nature so on one side there can be fuel poverty on the other side there can be for for rural Ireland there's a, an implication of being having to having to drive cars to actually get around uh, because there isn't a good public transport system both of these need to be protected against so before you actually go and bring in this carbon tax mm-hmm. you can do you can bring in the carbon tax if you put the mitigation for rural dwellers, for vulnerable people, for people uh, affected by fuel poverty, if you put all of those into place, then you can do the, 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 the uh, carbon tax, but not without okay. it. So we're very much in the lower half of the European table in response to the environment, as, so. as we are in terms of healthcare. Yes, and I think one of the things here is that um, we have, we have, if you like, um, kind of not really adjusted structurally, made the structural adjustments that are required. Uh, we've talked on this program on several time, in several occasions, yourself and myself, about the issue of uh, primary care teams and the need to roll out the full uh, gamut of, of the primary care system that's supposed to be in place. And until such time as we put that basic building block in place, we don't have this, the, the basic foundation or the cornerstone in place for uh, healthcare that would be uh, viable for the future. We have to be moving towards a situation in which we have a one-tier health system, not a two-tier one where you can get access if you have the money and you have to wait for years if you don't. That's what we have at the moment. It's not good enough. We need a, 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 a the healthcare system that is primarily focused on primary care, social care, that puts the primary care teams uh, into uh, that whole, all those networks into place so that they then find, become the first one-stop shop, if you like, the first play, port of call rather than accidents and emergencies in hospitals, which currently is the situation. Okay. We leave there for the moment. Thank you very much, Sean, as always, for joining us today. Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there's a lot of concern about new measures which are being introduced from Wednesday in a small Asian country called Brunei, which is on the north coast of the island of Borneo in Southeast Asia. There are two put to death uh, people uh, who are found Muslims this is uh, who are found uh, to be gay they'll stone them or whip them to death uh, as uh, capital punishment for their crimes Berendine Quinn is project coordinator with Dundalk Outcomers and uh, she joins us now good morning to you Berendine morning Michael how are you Uh, I'm I'm very well Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you've 
ever heard of uh, the like, uh, but uh, it really is shocking beyond belief, isn't it? Oh, it's just stomach churning. Listening to you saying the words, you know, reading it is one thing, but hearing somebody say it out loud, is, it's just absolutely disgraceful, inhumane, horrendous treatment of people. Mm, there's been strong reaction, obviously, around uh, the world uh, to this, uh, but uh, it's a, a debate that's going on a, a number of years. Uh, I think uh, they were to first introduce these measures in 2013, but uh, it seems as though they're set to come into force from Wednesday. Yeah, I think the outcry at the time stopped it, or they they maintained they weren't ready to um, impose it at the time, and I think it was the public outcry that stopped it, and I think... Uh, and I think that's the job all over again is to, you know, to um, have a huge outcry about it mm. uh, again and see if it can be it can be stopped once and for all. Some famous people have definitely gotten on board and are, um, mm. you know, um, talking about protests and are not using uh, the services of the of the king. Or if, um, mm-hmm. uh, he owns hotels mm-hmm. all around mm-hmm. the world, yeah. and it's a very, very, very wealthy man. I'm not sure that that has any impact at all, but I think the public face of Brunei and the public face of him is the answer. Australia are putting out requests that they no longer allow Brunei Airlines to fly into their country, stuff like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You know, rights organisations in Australia are crying for let's let's stop. There, there are aeroplanes landing in our country and any country that uh, promotes human rights should do the same, that kind of stuff and whether that would have yeah. some kind of impact is, is the question how do you, how do you impact on the, on the richest man in the world and mm. you know, how do you make him think differently than what he does and around his faith and stuff yeah, It really is very hard to Contemplate. Uh, he owns some of uh, the world's most uh, exclusive hotels, the Dorchester or the Beverly Hills Hotel in Los Angeles. Uh, people like Elton John and George Clooney have been asking that uh, these hotels be boycotted. I think there's nine hotels uh, around the world. And I suppose uh, that's making a statement in itself, uh, but that won't stop somebody from being stoned to death. That's right. And, and you know, the unfortunate thing is, and that's it, trying to take it right back to the human picture and all that wealth and all that obscenity up there. But to take it back, like these probably have already, you know, set their sights on gay people that live there that they know is gay. That happened so many times in Africa where they actually have the people already selected that they want to go after to arrest or whatever mm. the case is. So they probably already have, have their sights set on, on, on people that they know or that they suspect are gay. Uh, and whose the clock is ticking down for those people, you know. So you'd uh, expect these death sentences uh, to be carried out? Well, unless there's some really, really powerful force that can come and and stop it, yes. Mm. And, you know, whether that's world leaders, are they? Is 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 it important to world leaders? Is it important enough to world leaders to to demand that it stops? Human Rights Amnesty International are fighting it, mm. um, you know, but. Like just what stops them? What stops this this man in in his country that he rules, uh, and that he seems to? The only thing is public outcry seems to be he his saving face, his concern around his reputation. So, if other countries start condemning him for what he's doing, then maybe. But if we let it just slide with just one or two very rich, very. Mm. Um, prominent people saying stuff it it probably won't make any difference but their voices are very very important of course George Clooney Elton John people like that Ellen mm. 
people like that, their voices are very important. What about Leo Radker? Could his voice be important I, in I all of this? So. Uh, I absolutely uh, do think so. Uh, I, I'm sure you'd welcome any Taoiseach making public statements uh, about something like this, but is there an onus on the Taoiseach or is it, is it unfair to expect him to take a position on this because of his sexuality? No, I think there's a few. I think the um, the Prime Minister of Belgium as well as a gay man. I, um, I think there are some leaders now who are part of the LGBT community and their voices coming together. I don't think they owe it to the LGBT community to do it, but I think that they certainly, you know, they they should have some sense of responsibility around, well, this is our lives and our community that we're talking about here. And so I definitely think that in any way that they can raise it. Unfortunately, at the moment, Europe and Ireland are in turmoil over other stuff mm. and America's in turmoil over other stuff. Mm. And all of this, these other things that are going on around the world allows stuff like this to slip in under the radar without being challenged. And we need to, you know, where we need to focus on the Brexits and the big things in the world and course, presidential yeah. elections and Mueller reports or whatever's going on around the world. Yeah. Those need our attention, but also these little things that some people might find insignificant, small little country, 500,000 people, yeah. you know, just a small little place and uh, it can slip in and those laws can become law very very easily without really much attention and the next thing we see are the horrendous images that we've seen through ISIS and stuff like that about what happened to gay people and that's the next thing we're looking at Yeah and I know that there's big issues uh, but perhaps uh, with those big issues that seem to overshadow everything uh, there comes opportunity Uh, the Taoiseach is meeting with President Macron in Paris tomorrow Chancellor Merkel will be in Dublin on Thursday and whilst Brexit will probably be the only topic of conversation perhaps there is an opportunity there yeah, I, I agree. And, and maybe it's something that, you know, that the LGBT community here will get behind and go and try to have some kind of um, uh, presence at, at uh, wherever Merkel is going to be and, and they say outside the doll and um, be speaking to Leo. Like, I, I think mm. um, Leo Varadkar is open to those kind of... He was here with us a couple of weeks ago. He came and visited us. And uh, I think he's open to um, those kind of... Um, comments. He's not afraid of them. Like in in America, he um, at breakfast with Mike Pence, he spoke about being gay. So he's you know he's not afraid to have those conversations. And I just think that it would be a great. It would be it would be something. I don't mm. know how good it would be. I don't know how open to hearing that kind of stuff this Brunei boy is. But it would be worth having those conversations, I think, and, and asking for more pressure to be put uh, brought to bear on them. Um, you know, countries that are very important to Brunei, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, Australia, those ASEAN countries, you know, whatever whatever kind of pressure they can bring to bear, are the, I suppose, are, are, uh, is, is what's really important. And um, I definitely think that it's something that should be raised um, and I, th- I think it, it comes up, you know, there's 72 countries in the world where being LGBT is punishable by death. Oh. Yeah. Like, we talk about Brunei now because, mm. it's, but like Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, UAE, African countries, there's 72 countries. Mm. Um, you know what's happening in Chechnya, where gay people are disappearing? 
never showing up again, lesbian women just disappearing, um, and uh, all led by the um, by Mr. Putin's best friend in in Chechnya, and they've hundreds and hundreds of gay people have disappeared or some of them have gone to prison for long periods of time and had their passports taken off them and they have been they're now prisoners in that country they can't move and and they get a really really difficult time regularly arrested and beaten up um the rights of lgbt people in russia and and um, chechnya is horrendous mm. you know and, and so it's and we need to use brunei as 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 a, 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 an example of what can happen when we choose to ignore these because you think it's only a small group of people, it's only a tiny island, but it's not. It's a much, much bigger um, problem. And it's um, and, and people are being killed and being tortured on a regular basis because mm. of who they love in, in, in the world. And, that, you know, it's really, really not OK. Yeah. And we've got we've got direct provision services full of LGBT people that are living terrified to come out in their direct provision service because there's people from other nationalities who hate them or who believe that they should be killed and uh, so adding vulnerability onto vulnerability you know mm. asylum seekers yeah asylum mm. seekers mm. yeah God it's uh, bizarre beyond belief uh, but uh Thanks uh, for joining us this morning. Nonetheless, Bernadine Quinn, Project Coordinator with the Dundalk Outcomers. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to uh, the Garda raid on a cigarette and alcohol processing plant in Knockbridge, County Louth. Uh, we're joined by Declan Brannock, who's a Finnefall TD for the county and local to the area himself. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here this morning. Uh, were you surprised and shocked by what you saw? Uh, indeed, as were uh, the residents uh, of Knockbridge. Uh, and I think on their behalf, I would condemn the activity in the strongest manner and uh, pay tribute to the uh, both the Garda, the PSNI, and indeed uh, the customs in terms of uh, both their intelligence and diligence in, in, in bringing closure to this particular uh, activity. Uh, Michael, your listeners will be aware that you know I've spoken about the whole issue of be it smuggling or illicit trade on many, many occasions since I've entered Dáil Éireann and before um, and I suppose living along the border you know, there was always that traditional dare I say it, nod in a wink where you know people were smuggling small amounts of product but this in its utmost is criminality at its best um, we've seen where the whole issue of fuel laundering that some grips have been got to that mm. but these criminals um, have moved as we all know into the whole issue of both uh, illegal uh, disposal of household waste, uh, uh, creating hoosh, uh, legal alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, drugs. This wasn't a putching still, though. I mean, this was a, a very professional, industrial way of dealing in counterfeit. Absolutely. Or contraband, but I mean, rather. But, but this is par for the course, Michael. All you mm. have to do is reflect on uh, the cigarette manufacturing mm. plant that was found in Cooley earlier this year. Uh, this is on a par in relation to the cigarette element of it. And indeed, as you rightly say, mm. uh, this is not a small operation in relation to alcohol. This is uh, fraud of its highest where people have to recognise that the production of this product, alcohol or cigarettes, mm. is going to cause problems 
in, in for people's health down the lane. But more importantly, people need to realise that by engaging with these people who are producing and dealing this criminality, that the retailers, the small shops, when people start to give out that the small shop has closed in their mm. area, uh, I hope those who are illicitly buying this, these products of these gangs will come to realise that they're going to be the cause of why the local shop is closed. Mm-hmm. When it has problems, maybe they should reflect on where they're buying their product. And indeed, uh, as I said so many times before, you know, we... we the, the issue of the loss and leakage of revenue that could well be spent in our health services, our education services, and indeed to improve the services for people in our community. Mm-hmm. This particular operation was estimated as a, a revenue loss of 25 million. Mm. I mean, people need to get real uh, in relation to... Uh, well, a minimum of real- 25 million, wasn't it? You know. Say again? Sorry, Michael. A, a minimum of 25 million. I think they just referred to the tobacco that was uh, on site, uh, but uh, undoubtedly the capacity uh, to uh, result in losses of multiples of that over the course of, of a year or many years. Uh, and by the looks of it, it probably was there for years. Uh, certainly for a number of years. My understanding is that uh, there's illegal fuel laundering in the vicinity as well, but it, mm. it's, it's very discommoding for the locals uh, who would not be supportive be. of any mm. of this particular activity. Uh, but it was happening under everybody's nose, and, and I suppose this must be the thing that people locally are saying to themselves, uh, what was going on and why didn't we realise? I mean, to all intents and purposes, it was just another factory in the area, I'm sure, with trucks coming and going, people going to work, uh, undoubtedly on a, a daily basis, as you would see in any industrial unit. Well, this is not an industrial unit. This particular property has planning permission for 16 stables uh, and uh, locals have been very concerned over a period of time to see uh, what you've described uh, raised out of the ashes for what was supposed to be uh, 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 raiding facilities or, or a place uh, for keeping horses. Far from it. All you have to do is look at uh, the pictures of the external of the particular mm. building to see it. But my, what is very discommoding in, in, for me in relation to this whole issue is that there are two issues. One, obviously, uh, I've referred to that in terms of what people are using properties for, uh, what they're planning permission for. But more importantly is the issue that if you have a property, Mike, or I have a property or sheds to let, you know, to me, it's incumbent on the person who's letting that property to be aware of what is they're letting it for and what activity is subsequently going on mm. in that. And, now, and had people I, come and complain to you? Uh, I regularly get phone calls uh, uh, in relation to properties where people mm. are concerned uh, and certainly there was concern in the past in relation to this particular property. And were people suspicious of this type of activity, this type of uh, production taking place in Knockbridge? Well, people were, were, were cognizant that it wasn't uh, 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 a place where horses were, there were some horses being kept there, but certainly the extent of its growth uh, uh, was way beyond that activity and certainly there were people asking what is going on there. Mm. Ultimately, the, the Revenue and uh, Argade have done a good job, but more importantly, as I was just about to say to you, Mike, and I think your listeners, the whole issue of people being aware of what, what they're letting and who they're letting to, and indeed, I, I intend to pursue this for uh, the Justice Spokesperson, Jim O'Callaghan. I do think there's need for some form of legislation that an onus of responsibility when you let a property to be aware that people are not engaging in illegal activity. And as a result of that, if that illegal activity happens and is found out, there should be a penalty, on, in my view, on the person 
who owns the property. Invariably, you saw what happened on, on Saturday. The place was raided. Mm. Nobody has been arrested. And in my experience over the last number of years, when these particular operations, whether it was fuel or otherwise, were discovered, suddenly it's see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, and nobody gets charged. But, uh, I mean, somebody must have been renting, paying money over for this and are identifiable as a result. Well, I would hope so, but uh, you, you know that uh, the people who lurk in these dark places in criminality usually have their tracks covered, but uh, I, I hope both Revenue and uh, Gardaí can uh, identify these people and bring them to book. Mm. You'd imagine it's possible. I suppose it shows the profits that are involved in this type of activity and how sophisticated some of these gangs have become, if that's the right term to use in an operation like this, because I think you'd associate gangs with something altogether different. But this is essentially gangland crime, isn't it? Yes, and you know your listeners need to be aware that whether it's your son or daughter who ultimately gets into difficulty with drugs or otherwise, these guys are feeding into anything that will bring them in additional revenue. The 25 million referred to over the weekend is the tip of the iceberg, mm. but you have to remember that these guys are recirculating the, the profits and proceeds of these crimes back into the communities where ultimately our sons and daughters and others are going to be impacted upon. And being added to that, and this, this has been well known uh, in the border region, that young people have been sucked into working uh, in this activity and are earning considerable amounts of money on the backs of these criminals. And then they become almost subservient and uh, you know, are requested, if you like, to continue their operations and can't get out of that situation because of the thuggery that's involved in this criminality. Big business, obviously. Very worrying. All right. Uh, listen, thank you uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Declan Brannock, Finnefall TD for Louth uh, and uh, a local in Knockbridge. Uh, before we leave you today, let's go back uh, to you and uh, some more of the comments that have been coming to us. Uh, what have you got for us there, Marie? Geraldine from Navin phoned in. She was listening to your interview with Bernadine Quinn from Dundalk Outcomers. Mm. And she was saying, would the show consider doing a piece on tortured, tormented, murdered Christians for their faith in the Middle East and in Pakistan and in Africa? She thinks it might be something worth covering. Right. Okay, I'm not sure what to say about that. uh, But uh, I think uh, most Christians would think two wrongs don't make a right. Jack says that there is a law against drug driving as well mm. and drugs are as big a problem as drink mm. and could even be bigger. But you don't hear if many people are being caught drug driving and he feels if you're going to implement a new law, it should be fair. I can't remember the statistics offhand, uh, but they have recently uh, started roadside testing for drugs and there have been a, a number of arrests as a result. Alice from Ballymun phoned in. She mm. was also listening to that interview with Bernadine. She says that um, we have a gay Taoiseach and she feels he's the best man who ever stood in Dáil Éireann. I have a son who is gay and I have loads of gay friends. If you have a friend who is gay, you have a friend for life. They are very loyal, she says, and she feels that the way that Leo uh, Varadkar has spoken about his sexuality has really helped the community here in Ireland and she feels that he's a credit to his parents and to the country. Okay, very good. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he'd be very happy with that.
um, another listener says uh, WhatsApped us mm. to say that a dishwasher uses 15 to 22 litres per cycle. I wash my hands twice a day and use about four litres per wash in the dish. Plus, people are rinsing dishes before putting them in the dishwasher, Michael. How on earth can you say that dishwashers use less water? Well, apparently they do. There you mm. go. All right. Okay. <laughs> Do you wash your dishes before you put them in the dishwasher? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave me out of it. Uh, I, I do. I have to admit, I do. I do give them a little rinse. Okay. <laughs> uh, just uh, mention for anybody who's thinking about uh, driving uh, from uh, the north side of Drogheda to the south side, or the south side of Drogheda to the north side over the Viaduct Bridge. <laughs> that that was an April Day spoof. That's where we leave you for today. I caught that all right. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. michael at lmfm.ie